Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You'll remember that the chapter began with Jesus predicting his death. The plot to kill him by the religious leaders in verses 1 through 5. And then the Lord predicted the manner of his death, crucifixion. And then the method by which he would die, betrayal. Matthew now tells us the story of a woman who anoints Jesus at Bethany in the home of a man named Simon the leper. She pours a very expensive alabaster jar of ointment over his head. And the disciples are indignant over what looks like an extravagant waste of valuable resources that might have been used to help the poor. Jesus defends the woman in two ways. Number one, the Lord reminds them that the woman did this as a preparation for his burial. There's an aspect in which the Lord defends what she's done because of this preparation, but there's also a prophetic aspect. And the prophetic aspect, again, is he ties his death with the gospel of God, the good news that God sent his son into the world to save sinners. Her devotion will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. In short order, we see a dedication on the part of Mary in verses 8 and 9. And then a stinging denunciation by the disciples in verses 8 and 9. And then also the compassionate defense by Jesus for the woman's actions in verses 10 through 13. So in Matthew's timeline, you'll remember as we've looked at chapter 23 and chapter 24 and chapter 25... In the chronology of the gospel that we're reading, Jesus only has about two days left to live. But the New Testament gospels didn't always arrange all of the events in chronological order. Careful readers of the New Testament find further details of this event in Mark chapter 14 verses 1 through 11. And then again in John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8. Matthew provides us with a kind of a flashback, a looking back. He is going to contrast the worship and the devotion of Mary with the betrayal and the, and the treachery of Judas and the religious leaders. Some might think the whole scene is out of place, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
In John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, we read, quote, The six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who, was, who had been raised from the dead, unquote. So the, the episode takes place two days before the pa Passover in Matthew and, and Mark, and six days before the Passover in John. And again, skeptics, critics, doubters will go, aha, a contradiction in the Bible. Why do two gospel writers say it's, seem to give us the indication that it's two days before the event and one six days before the event? Well, again, the simple answer is that Matthew is using a device, a writing device. It's used often in writing where a person will all of a sudden remember something that has taken place in the past in order to contrast what's happening in the text. It's interesting to me that he is going to provide a contrast and then an explanation. Movie makers, storytellers often will use flashbacks. Sometimes when you're watching a movie, it goes from color to black and white and it blurs a little bit. So you go, is this taking place According to the chronology, they're trying to leave you with the impression that something has already happened in order to explain what is present. Think about what's happening. Some desire to kill the king. But at least one person wants to worship the king. Wants to express love and affection for the king. And again, let me just remind you of the chronology of the events. Jesus left Jericho and then journeyed towards Jerusalem. He arrived in Bethany where Mary anoints Jesus in the text in which we're reading right now. He then goes to Bethphage where two disciples obtain the donkey and the foal where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. You'll remember he drives out the money changers. You'll remember he re re leaves and returns. He curses the fig tree. He leaves Jeru Jerusalem, the temple mount, and he goes to the Mount of Olives and teaches chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25. And now the mist begins to fill. It fades to this flashback of sacrifice and worship in verses 6 and 7. Look what it says. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. The event unfolds in Bethany. If you know Jerusalem and you cross the Kidron and you walk up the Mount of Olives as you're pushing further east on the way back towards Jericho, that's where Bethany is located. It's in the house of one Simon the leper. And I think it's safe to say that Simon isn't like a leper. He's a ex-leper. He's a guy who used to be a leper because people with leprosy weren't allowed to throw dinner parties. And sometimes you have to just state the obvious about things in culture and society. I remember when my father came and visited our church and he saw the agape boxes and he saw people putting 
money in the, the agape boxes. He, my father said, when do we take the money? I go, Dad, we don't take the money. We receive an offering. It's an offering to the Lord. My dad starts laughing. He slaps my brother in the back. He says, can you believe it? These people give your brother money and he doesn't even have a gun. <laughs> I go, Dad, things work differently in church. But again, he would have understood this Simon the leper because he had a lot of friends with unusual names. He had one friend named CC. I said, Dad, why do you call the guy CC? He goes, because he drinks Canadian Club like a fish. Other characters in his life were Jimmy Eyebrows and Fat Tony Bones and The Champ and Johnny Blue Eyes and Vincent No Toes. He called him Vinny the Limp. Now, again, this is what's happening. Simon is being identified, I suspect, as a person who used to have leprosy, but we have every reason to believe that Jesus might have healed him. And we also have every reason to believe that at this dinner conversation, Jesus is reclining. When it says sit, it doesn't really mean sit in that ancient culture of of the Jewish people, they would recline, they would lie down, and the person at the seat of honor would, would, would be reclining. And so picture, if you will, when Mary comes forth, she is anointing his head, and it wouldn't have been unusual for a Jewish person to anoint a guest with oil, but this is an extravagant expression of hospitality. We also have every reason to believe that Lazarus is there. And so you can imagine that the dinner conversation is going to be surrounding a number of different subjects, including Simon's illness, including Lazarus's resurrection from the dead. And we know the name of the woman. It's Mary, Martha's sister. And the reason why we know that is from John chapter 12, verse 3, where we read, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. In an unexpected, at least by the guests at the party, Mary performs this lavish act of spontaneous worship. Again, this lovely and spontaneous act of worship is meant to provide a beautiful balance between the cunning, the treachery, the wickedness that is about to take place on the part of Jesus because of his betrayal by Judas. Remember, remember what you're reading. The enemies of Jesus are trying to kill him. At least one lover of Jesus is trying to love him and express that love. In our lives, we're sometimes given the privilege to express our love. And our affection in sacrificial acts that benefit someone we love. Sometimes we're the recipients of someone else's generosity, grace, and mercy. I suspect that each and every one of you, given an opportunity to stand up say, and say, Has anyone ever blessed you at a moment that it really mattered? And you would tell me these exciting, almost if not miraculous stories of provisions by God and his people. If you've ever received a gift at just the right moment, 
it can quite literally change your life. The word worship and the word love doesn't appear even once in this passage, but it's everywhere present in the passage because you can sense the aroma, the fragrance of worship and love. <laughs> the story of Mary pouring costly oil on the head and the feet of Jesus isn't simply an act of kindness towards a man who's about to die. It's the story of love and worship with a kind of reckless abandon. Mary's act of anointing Jesus with the oil should teach us something about what it means to love the Lord and worship the Lord. By the way, in the ancient world, there was a, a word that the Greeks used to describe worship. It's, it's the Greek word pros, keneo. It means to kiss towards. In the ancient world, uh, people would celebrate or even sometimes worship by kissing the ground. If you've ever been in an almost near fatal accident up in the air, you get off the plane and you've seen people kiss the ground. Sometimes in the ancient world, people would kiss the statue of their God or they would, they would kiss the symbol of authority like the crown of the king or the ring of the ruler or the scepter or they would take the hem of the garment and kiss it. It was, it was an act of and an expression of affection and devotion. So what lessons do we glean right away from Mary's extravagant act of love? Well, the first lesson that I want to bring to your attention is that worship, love, is costly. Later in the text, the disciples are indignant. We also learn that Judas is the one who suggests that the ointment might have been sold and given to the poor. Not because he valued the poor, but rather because he was a thief. He was dipping his hand into the ministry purse, according to John chapter 12, verse 5. At the party, Martha was serving. People were talking. People are eating. All kinds of different dynamics are taking place at this dinner party. But Mary, Mary is watching. She has been listening. Mary watches and listens and she loves the Lord. I'm going to suggest to you that Mary has been listening, listening carefully as Jesus has been talking. I'm about, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And it could very well be that Mary's going, how come he's saying these things and nobody is listening? I'm going to suggest to you perhaps not that she understands everything about everything, but she understands something important and she wants to demonstrate her affection for Jesus, her love for Jesus. And so she takes the most expensive treasure that she owns and she offers it to the Lord. It's an alabaster flask filled with spikenard over a pound. This fragrant oil was made from the leaves of a plant that grew along the banks of the Ganges River in India. It was rare. It was costly. 
It was precious. It was valuable. And even Judas, the human calculator who values money and math way more than he valued his Lord, values the oil at almost or perhaps close to a year's wage, which would have been about over 300 denarii. Mary wants to give it. True worship doesn't always do the math. True worship and love doesn't always count the cost. We should pause for a moment and just speculate. I don't like to do this normally, but let's ask a question. What do you suppose she was going to do with this? What, what plans did she have for this ointment? Was it for her own funeral? Remember what we've already learned. Her brother has just recently died and come back to life. We know that he was buried and we know that he was in a cave. And we know that when Jesus said to, to Martha, remove the stone. And she said, but Lord, he stinketh. He had been decomposing for the last four days. She didn't use this ointment to bury her brother. She didn't use it for her brother's funeral. Was it an heirloom passed down for generations? Was it her dowry just in case she's ever going to find a man? Is it a part of her retirement? What was she going to do with this? Whatever she was going to do, it didn't matter anymore. Because she was going to give it to Jesus. And sometimes worship is costly. It's sacrificial. What will true worship and love cost you? What will it cost me? When David wanted to worship the Lord and build him a temple, David <clears throat> offered to purchase the threshing floor of Ornan, if you'll remember, the Temple Mount itself is about a 15-acre a complex, and it was owned by a, a guy named Ornan. And David offered to purchase the threshing floor from him. And Ornan said, you know what? I'm going to give it to you as a gift. And David said no, that he refused to give something to the Lord that cost him nothing. I will not give to God that which cost me nothing, he said. So worship and ministry that costs nothing will often accomplish nothing. So for Mary, love and worship wasn't calculating the cost. It was expressed in this act of devotion of, of something precious. Mary is saved. Her brother is back from the dead. But I'm going to suggest that she may have known something that was oblivious to the people around her. Whatever else was happening, her love and her worship was going to be sacrificial and expensive and extravagant. And number two, true love and worship puts Jesus first. Look again at verse 11. Look what it says. Jesus says, for the poor you have with you always, but you don't always have me. Well, does this mean that Jesus doesn't value the poor? Of course not. That can't be true. We can't use Christ's statement as an excuse to neglect the poor or overlook the poor or pretend that there isn't real problems and real poverty. We have much instruction in the New Testament and even the Old Testament that talks about our obligations, if you will, to the poor. The Lord is 
isn't suggesting that we avoid them or ignore them. I'm going to suggest to you that what the Lord is doing is he's making a statement about priority. The opportunity to anoint his living body with fragrant oil isn't going to come by again. It's not going to happen. This is a unique opportunity. This is the opportunity to anoint his living body with fragrant oil. And that ship isn't going to come again. But again, what it should do is it it should prompt each and every one of us to ask a different question. And that question is, what is the priority of your life? Is it your family? Is it your children? Is it your business? Because I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible invites you to make Jesus the priority of your life. I'm not saying ignore your family, ignore your children, or even ignore your business. But what I am saying is that it's okay for you to ask yourself this question about priority. Have you made the conscious decision that you're going to make Jesus the priority of your life? Loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus, is that the priority of your life? It makes perfect sense to me that you love your family and that you love your children. But the New Testament invites you not to have a child-centered home, but a Christ-centered home. Do you give to the work of the Lord? Or has something always pushed down the priority of Jesus? You go, okay, this is important to me, this is important to me, this is important to me, but somehow Jesus always winds up last. You may think that you have unlimited opportunities to give to the work of the Lord or to give to the Lord. You might think, oh, you know what? There's always going to be tomorrow. There's always going to be another opportunity. There's going to be another opportunity to love him and worship him and serve him. But I'm going to suggest to you that one day, one day, the opportunity is going to come to a close. And number three, love and worship often has an interesting byproduct. And what is that? Did you know that you will become like the thing that you love the most? Whatever it is, whoever it is, you will become like the people you love. You will become like the thing that you value. So what is it that you value? What is it that you truly care about? What is it that you express your affection and devotion Because remember, love and worship is both an attitude, it's a state of mind, but it's also something that you do. It's not simply something that we feel, but it's something that we act out. We can't love or worship without doing something about the thing that we love and worship. People go to church for a number of different reasons. Nobody knows that better than me. I'll sometimes ask you, Why are you here? What brought you here? A person may come because they want peace. They want peace of mind. They want peace in their heart. They want peace with God. They want grace. They want forgiveness. They want hope. They want freedom from guilt. They want spiritual nourishment. And none of those things are wrong. 
But none of those things are worship and love for Christ. You see, love and worship isn't about getting something from God. Love and worship is about giving something to God. Love and worship really are a preparation for an abundant life. But it's also a preparation for inevitable death. And remember what we learned last week. That part of the point of this passage is that Jesus is going to remind us a little bit about how we prepare our death. Jesus is also going to be bringing out the reality of his own death. So we're talking about those things that prepare us, not just for life, but for death. So when Mary breaks this fragile flask and she pours the content on her Savior, make no mistake about it. Not only does Jesus begin to take on the fragrance of what's been placed on his body, but the whole room begins to take on the fragrance. I wear this cologne. It's the only cologne I've worn for the last probably 10 years. And some, some people will go, what is that cologne you're wearing? And I'll say, it's called, you make me nervous. <laughs> That's really not the name of the cologne. But it does make me nervous when people come up close to me and they go... You really will take on the fragrance of that which is around you. And so we understand just for a brief moment the selfish reasons why we, re we refuse to love and worship in verses 8 and 9. Look what it says. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. The passage tells us, that his disciples note are indignant. That means they're angry and they are put off. Why this waste? In John's gospel, we read in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put into it. It was John's way of saying, we didn't find out until later that we let him keep the, the finances of the ministry. And by the way, make no mistake about it. Do you know who you entrust with the finances of your ministry? The person you trust the most. You typically don't give your financial future to a person who's a thief and a liar. You give your financial future to the person you trust the most. The disciples fail to see this act of worship and fail to see this act of love. Now think about what's happening in the text. Instead of an act of worship and an act of love, they see an act of waste. This money could have been used for a much better purpose in their thinking. 
Now, again, it doesn't trouble me. It doesn't trouble me that people in the world think that giving to the work of the Lord or giving to the work of the church is a gigantic waste of funds. It makes perfect sense to me that you have moms and dads and brothers and sisters who say, what are you doing giving money to the church? You don't have enough money for yourself. What in the world are you thinking about? Some people think it's a waste. It's an absolute waste of time and resources to give to the work of the Lord. It's a waste to tithe. It's a waste. It's a waste to give anything to Jesus. We receive requests from organizations to give money for political candidates, for environmental concerns, for social justice. There's lots of things that we give to, and some appropriately, and perhaps some less appropriately. In the Bible, giving is an act of love and worship to the Lord. So why are so many people reluctant to give? I think that the simple answer is either number one, it costs too much, or number two, they want to do something else with the resources, or number three, the obvious. Oh, I don't want to be broke or broken because worship costs way more than simply time or simply money. Worship means a willingness to submit and to depend upon the Lord. For some, it's image. They're, they're suspicious. I mean, imagine somebody comes to our church and they go, you guys meet in a shopping center? What kind of store, what kind of a church is a store for a church? And then they come into the church and then they come into the sanctuary and they go, Oh, wow, it, it really is a church. Well, that's fine. I'll just check it out. And so we start to worship. We sing. And they fold their arms. And they look at the screen. Even when the, 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 the text says, I lift my hands up, they go, not me. I'm not going to do it. That's not me. I'm going to fold my arms, and I'm going to watch and I'm going to see, I don't want people to think that I'm some sort of charismatic nut job. They're not going to lift their hands in a, as a sign of submission or an act of adoration. It's not going to happen. They'll say stuff during the worship in their own mind. My head hurts. My body hurts. My, I'm bored. I, I get it. I get it. Worship is costly. Worship requires your attention, your focus, your determination. And you won't worship when you insist on being first instead of having Jesus be first. Do you think worship is just simply showing up at church or even giving to the church? John's gospel in chapter 12, verse 3, adds these words, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. The reason why I think about that is because it prompted me to ask myself a question. What does my house smell like? Is it filled with the fragrance of the presence of the Lord? What does your house smell like? What does our house smell like? What does it smell like? Is it getting a little bit gamey? Is it rude 
if I ask you the most blunt question, does your house stink? Is it filled with the odor of anger, of bitterness, of rage, of revenge? What does it smell like at home? Does it smell like bickering? Does it smell like fighting? Can you taste the tension? Is there something going on? Are you agonizing over something in your life or your children's life? Is it your job or is it your health? What is the aroma of your life? I'm going to suggest that you do what Mary did. Gather at the feet of Jesus. When the house stinks, fill the fragrance of your home with the worship of the Lord and affection for the Lord. Let Jesus fill your home. Let Jesus fill your heart. Let the fragrance of love and worship fill your heart and then fill the room. Look at the Savior's response. What memorial will you leave? Look what it says in verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, what? The indignation. He said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but you, don't, but you do not have always. But me, you do not have always. So Jesus is aware of their indignation. He's aware of their opposition to Mary's extravagant act of love and worship. We might add just a few more lessons on this act of extravagance and worship. Number four, love and worship are time sensitive. When Jesus says, you have the poor with you always. Remember what I've already said. He's not saying neglect the, the poor, ignore the poor, pretend like there are no poor people. He is reminding them that true love and worship is timely. It comes at exactly the right moment. In one week from this event, Jesus will be dead. He is going to suffer an incredible amount of pain and indignation. It's going to happen. We, again, we know it's six days before the Passover in John chapter 12, verse 1. The window, the, the window for love and the window for worship, it's open, but it's closing quickly. So Jesus rebukes their insensitivity. He rebukes their lack of compassion. The Holy Spirit might prompt you to perform some act of love or worship. You might be compelled to participate in some good deed. You might say, you know, the Lord has really impressed upon me that I need to love someone today. I need to tell them that I love them. I need to, to participate in some act of blessing or refreshment. It could be that the time is starting to close. You're not going to be given much more opportunity to invite people to church. Now is the time. Now is the time to love him and worship him. Now is the time to serve him. Now is the time to do some good deeds, some selfless act of kindness, to express yourself in love. And in verses 12 and verse 13, it says, For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. 
Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The Lord attempts in this statement to correct their thinking. In their mind, giving to the Lord, loving him and worshiping is an act of waste. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not wasteful. No, it's beautiful. No, it's creative. The Lord says, she did it for my burial. Sometimes it seems rude. Can you imagine uh, on a child's fifth birthday, you go, hey, look, we got them this, this great funeral plot. And you go, you know, we need to give an appropriate gift to our child. And so here, Jesus is saying she understands what's happening. Jesus is commending her for her creativity in worship. The Lord Jesus says she's doing it for my burial. She's doing it so that whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, this expression of love and worship is going to serve as a memorial to her. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners you may not know it. You may be interested in Jesus' life and you may be interested in his teachings and you may be interested in his ethical system, but over 175 times in the New Testament, there is repeated, obvious, clear references to his death over and over again, a hundred, over 175 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. Mark's gospel adds in chapter 14, verse 6, she's done a good work for me. Mark's gospel in 14, 8 says, she has done what she could. And so that brings up number five. Worship and love include being creative. Mary participates in an act of true worship, true love. Her worship is spontaneous. It's creative. She did a good work for me, Jesus said. She did what she could. Have I? Have you? Well, I can't sing. Neither can I. Can you write songs? I don't have any money. Then clearly... It's not, money is not the thing that Jesus is looking for from you. What is it that Jesus is looking for from you? Martha could serve. Lazarus, well, what could he do? He could die and come back to life. Remember, he does so with the help of Jesus. He just doesn't die and come back to life on his own. It could very well be that God does something in your life that he's done only for you, that only you can share. Lazarus can speak of his adventure of beyond and back. Peter could preach. Andrew could bring his friends to Jesus. Mary might have been thinking, what can I do? How can I express my love? I know I'm going to give my ointment. I'm going to break the flask. I'm going to anoint his body. I'm going to give to Jesus what I have. What will you do? How will you serve? How will you express your affection? How will you express your devotion? This week I was 
going through our downstairs closet and I came across some projects from, of my children from years and years and years ago when they were in elementary school. I have projects of Miguel, his artwork. I have a clay duck that Anthony made. I have school reports that Jonathan made. I keep these treasures. I keep the treasures to remind me of my children. I keep these treasures, but I suspect that Jesus also keeps treasures. Your treasures. Your acts of kindness and devotion as a kind of memorial. And I think that Jesus might just have in his little treasure trove a widow's mite. He has a broken flask. In his treasury, he has a lot of broken things that he values. And number six, true love and worship is insightful and prophetic. Jesus said, she did it for my burial. Did Mary really, really know what she was doing? Like I said, in Mark's gospel, we read in 14.8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. If she did know, it would appear that she's the only one who knows. In the gospel, we see Mary loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. We find her at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10, 39. Well, what does that mean, at the feet of Jesus? I'm going to suggest to you that Mary was listening. And Mary was learning. Mary cultivated the habit of listening to the Lord, saying, Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. Lord, I want you to speak. I want to hear what you're saying, and I want to understand what you're saying. While Judas is plotting his death, while Martha is serving, while Peter is bragging, while the disciples are fighting for position. Mary's listening. She's listening. What do I hear Jesus saying? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be killed. Mary thinks to herself, I hear. I understand. I'll anoint you. I love you. I don't understand the full meaning of everything that you're doing but I understand that you're the source of life. I understand that you brought my brother back to life. I want to ask you a question. Do you make it a regular habit to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to what he has to say? Do you open up your Bible? Do you pray and you go, Lord, I want to know what you're saying. I want to hear from you. Do you pray? Do you study? Do you take advantage of the teaching ministry of your church? Because remember, true love and worship of Christ will bring insight. It was Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Bible teacher. He was one day riding on a train and, and with another man and, and another pastor. And this pastor had newspapers in his hand and he saw Donald Gray Barnhouse and he said, you know what? I just wish, I wish I knew the Bible the way that you know the Bible. And Dr. Barnhouse looked at the young pastor and said, put down your papers. Pick up your Bible. 
you will know what you know because you devote yourself to that. Just one more quick lesson. True love is loving. That's every Bible teacher's nightmare. We're not supposed to define a word with the word itself. It's like saying red is really red. Or dinner is almost ready when it's almost ready. True love and worship at its core in the central portion of love and worship is this sacrificial Love. Jesus is in effect saying, do you want to be memorialized? Do you want to be remembered? Do you want a plaque or, or, a, or a pew? Or do you want your name on a building? Do you want your name on a school? But the greatest memorial is going to be the memorial that you inscribe in the Savior's heart. If you want to be memorialized, stop building a memorial to yourself and build a memorial to the gospel. So how do we describe Mary's love and worship? Costly, a priority. She puts Jesus first. You're going to become like what you love and care about. Love and worship are time sensitive. Be creative in your love and worship. True love and worship will bring insight, but also true love is loving, costly, creative, lavish, insightful, motivated by love. Does that describe your worship? Because each of us are building a memorial to ourself, to the Lord. Last year I visited the Colosseum in Rome. I remember standing there seeing this edifice that has somehow managed to survive. You see, I know the story of its construction by Titus, the son of Vespasian. Titus hired an architect. He said, build me the Colosseum, and when it's done, I will crown you, and I will make your name famous throughout the whole world. The work was done, and the emperor said, the time has come to crown the architect. We're going to have a grand celebration. And the Colosseum was crowded. The, the, the multitude was huge. The emperor was there along with the chief architect who was to be crowned for this magnificent work. And then they brought out some Christians who were tasked to die for Jesus. You see, it was this architect who created an underground chamber for animals And when they brought out the Christians who were tasked to die for Jesus in the gospel of God from the trapdoors underneath, there were hungry lions and they were to be released. And the emperor rose up in the middle of the Colosseum and shouted to the crowds, The Colosseum is done! We have the Christians at the mouth of the lions. We've come to honor this architect who has constructed this wonderful building. The time has come for me to honor him and to further celebrate his triumph by the slaying of these Christians. And at that very moment, the architect jumped to his feet and he said, I too am a Christian. And they picked him up and they threw him in the arena. And he was torn to pieces by the lions and the gravel on the surface of the Colosseum that he designed was mixed with his own blood. And then they took the foundation stone of the Colosseum and then carefully removed his name. 
so that we don't know his name. All we know is that his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He built a Colosseum. Nobody remembers his name. But there's one important person who knows exactly who he is. It's the Lord Jesus. God knows who you are. God knows what you've done. The Colosseum stands as a memorial to blood and brutality and the might and the glory of Rome. But one day the Colosseum, I guarantee you, will return to dust. And the architect will be raised from the dead to live with Jesus forever. People may not remember who you are or what you've done, but Jesus keeps every act of sacrifice, every act of devotion, every act of love. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be men and women who worship. Lord, we understand that it's costly. We understand that for some of us, we haven't made it a priority. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, Lord, we know that we will become like what we care about. And Lord, we know that the time is passing. That the opportunity will one day no longer exist. Lord, we pray that we could be creative in our love and our worship. Lord, we pray that we could find traditional and non-traditional ways to give. And Lord, we know that when we worship you and love you and listen to you, that you're going to tell us things. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be motivated by guilt or by failure in the past, but a deep resolve to love you in the present. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, let's stand.